Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz. I am one of the hosts of the show. Along with me is John Boucher. How's it going, John? Hey, Al. How are you? I am so excited to be here on the premiere episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. We're, we're making history. Well, at the very least, we're making a podcast and we're debuting it at what is probably the worst possible time, <laughs> uh, given all that's going on in the world. Um, this is going to be a monthly podcast. We'll, we'll get that out of the way first. Um, and I generally am not going to get political or too deep. Uh, we're going to stick to wrestling for the most part to quote, uh, another podcast we both know of. But, um, you know, I do hope all our listeners are staying safe, healthy, secure, and well. Uh, and I also want, you know, I, I hope uh, the events going on in the world have made people realize that, especially in this day of, of social media, that not only do you all have a voice, but now more than ever, uh, your voice will be heard. And if you have some strong beliefs on uh, what to do with that platform, now is uh, the best time I can recall in recent memory uh, for you to use that. So please do so. Um, uh, but now back to the actual meat of the podcast. And, uh, this is called charting the territories. It, uh, relates to old school professional wrestling. And it's based on a blog I started within the last couple of years called charting the territories at charting the territories.com. Charting the territories is a data driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory, uh, from the late fifties through the mid eighties. In addition to attempting to get every house show run in the territory during that time, we use the data we have, which currently stands at, uh, over 14,000 shows in that 29 year time period. Um, we create statistics that quantify wrestlers achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. So, um, we're not going to be too stat heavy because no one wants, wants to listen to a podcast where all we do is read off numbers, but you do need to be familiar with, uh, two main statistics that we're going to use. And the first is called a spot rating. And it actually stands for statistical position over time. And what it does, it measures a wrestler's average position or their spot on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher spot rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. And spot rating is a number between zero and one, and we express it as a two-digit decimal. Uh, so you might have a 0.46, a 0.82, a perfect score is a spot rating of 1.00, and that means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. Um, and what's fascinating is you don't see that as much as you might think. Now, obviously, there's Peak Lawler, there's Peak Dusty, there's Bruno or Backlund in the WWF, but what we learn is that at any given point in time, John, uh, each territory has a few baby faces and a few heels that sort of rotate in and out of the main events on different shows and on different nights. Yes. And it's, uh, these stats are very, we even see it in, in this first episode in, in one of these months specifically, we see very, the, the way these, uh, stats relate to each other are very interesting. Um, and I, I, ever since I've stumbled upon your site, and I've been reading the blog even before my involvement. I've been fascinated with what you've been doing and the amount of research that you've been doing is incredible. Amazing, amazing stuff. And I'm really looking forward to being more involved with this. And these are just all these, the statistic aspect of it. I am fascinated with as a former baseball card guy when I was a kid 
And it's I, I liken it to, you know, the Sabre ratings. This is like if we're here to prove that, you know, Randy Colley is the Bobby Gritch of wrestling almost, <laughs> you know, that's that's one of the ways of looking at this whole thing that or the, the way one of the ways that I look at it. If they have Sabre metrics in baseball, I guess what we're doing is Zach Sabre Jr. metrics. Um, but so we have the spot rating. And then the other statistic you'll hear us refer to is um, a statistic called frequent encounters using data or for short, a feud score. It's used to measure what I call the intensity of a feud. And it's based not just on how many times a match happens, but how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it'll have a low feud score. If it's happening in multiple towns every night of the week with rematches happening over multiple weeks, it's going to have a higher feud score. It's expressed as a whole integer. So if a uh, spot rating is like a batting average, then this in many ways is similar to a home runs type of Statistic. Yeah. Excellent um, comparison. Yeah. As, as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud. Uh, 40 or higher means it's a major feud. The highest possible score is tricky because it varies based on a lot of factors related to how each territory operates or its booking strategy. And it also requires complete data, which we generally don't have. But anything approaching a hundred is about as high as we're likely to see. So now that you know about spot ratings and feud scores, uh, I think we can get into this. And uh, we post all these stats in fancy Excel charts that I spend way too much time laying out and color coding and making look as pretty as possible. So uh, please take a look at them if you want. But what we do at the blog, every month we look at this month in the McGurk-Watts territory in 1980. 1976 and 1972. Plus we go even further back in time and look at a three month time period in the sixties where we're currently looking at the second quarter of 1961. And of course, as we progress, we'll go on. So starting in 2021, we would look at 1981, 77, 73. Um, but on the podcast, we're going to focus on one of those on a rotating basis, not a strict schedule, but we're going to pick a year where something interesting or important happens. And we're going to focus on that. And what better way to start a podcast about the McGurk-Watts territory, which includes Mid-South Wrestling, without talking about uh, one of the biggest, most legendary angles in Mid-South Wrestling's history, which happened on June 9th, 1980. So that's the focus of this episode is June 1980. And when we say one of the biggest angles, I originally you know, was thinking, well, is it like top two? Is it top four? Is it top seven? What is it? And And of course... We don't really know how to quantify an angle and how good it was. We don't have enough attendance data to see if it popped houses or anything like that. Um, but I, when I thought about it, I came up with five angles that are the most remembered. They might not have been the most memorable. They might not have been the best, you know, for business, but as far as ones that people have talked about, um, from when they happen to this day, I came up with five. Um, and so that is 1980, Junkyard Dog being blinded by the Freebirds. 1982, Ted DiBiase turning heel on Junkyard Dog. 1984, uh, Watt slapping Cornette leading into the uh, Watts and Stagger Lee against the Midnight Express. Uh, 1985, DiBiase, Murdoch, and Flair with uh, what's basically a double turn with Murdoch and DiBiase. And then 1986, they put the Russian flag on the Cowboy. Uh, John, does that match up with your top five? Did I miss anything egregious or, or do you have anything else to, that should be in the mix? Those are very close to mine. The only one I swapped out with you 
full disclosure, we did not discuss this beforehand, so we're just going off by the seat of our pants here. I uh, the only one I, I had the uh, Magnum TA Wrestling Two feud. Ah, yeah, I had that. I, I love I love that because it's you know it is the typical student teacher established star protege angle, but usually to or not usually, and then the you know the in the WWF that I I grew up on, you're used to the the student turning on Bruno, or but here the the roles are reversed. The teacher turns on the student as he's unable to reconcile the fact that Magnum has, you know, become more popular than he than he is, and he's just so he's so good as a as a grumpy heel. His uh, voice yeah, is just it, just like perfect. when the when the Briscoes went healed, you don't think it's going to work, but it worked. Um, yeah. But I liken it. It's it's you know the split is coming, but it doesn't happen the way you want. And to me, you're talking about WWF. In many ways, it's similar to the Lex Luger to Tonka angle in that it sure seemed that Luger was turning and then they swerve you and it was to Tonka all along, which was, you know, every now and then, I mean, for the most part, you have to lead someone down the path and deliver, but every now and then you can switch it up. But what, what's great about most of these angles that it's what makes them so memorable is not just the angle in and of itself. It's that it was multi-layered. It often involved other yes. players or, and there's backstory. Um, if we talk about DiBiase and Murdoch, um, this was the angle was in 1985, but dating back to DiBiase's rookie year in 1975 in this territory, he was billed as Murdoch's protege. Yeah, so, and that comes into play. Uh, yeah. yeah. So this is literally 10 years in the making when DiBiase turns heel on dog. They, they, you know, they had already established that they were they didn't say they're real friends outside the ring in those words, but it was implied that it was a friendship based on more than, you know, just wrestling and that DiBiase was best man at JYD's wedding adds more impact. Especially with the, with the DiBiase babyface turn, there's so many, so many moving parts in that angle. Like it, it, it's, it's the, that one episode of TV primarily, but it's even further back. We would have, you know, Butch Reeves involved, uh, with Flair and Dick Slater and there's all sorts of moving parts and you can picture it on a chessboard almost of like Watts with these guys and everyone, everything that happens serves a purpose to someone. Nothing is wasted. Everything makes sense and everything resolves itself and everything. There's a reason for everything happening. Everything, like you said, goes back to, you know, the DiBiase and Murdoch goes back 10 years. It's like that type of booking doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And these, you know, and, and Watts, had been doing that for years. All, all of the memorable turns and angles are multi-layered. So we're going to talk about that uh, in a little bit. But so now that we've named six of the most memorable angles, where does JYD getting blinded by the Freebirds fit in? I would say to me, it's in the top two. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's number one. I'm not saying it's number two, but I'm saying between that and, uh, Watt slapping Cornette to me, uh, are the two angles that, that stand out as the most, uh, remembered angles in Mid-South. John? Yeah. I, I, I have, uh, Ted DiBiase babyface turn is number one and the JYD blinding angle is number two. Just only because the, uh, the, the DiBiase flare angle was just so, so many, there's so many things going on. It really is it a brilliant piece of, Everything was perfect. And the JYD blinding angle is fantastic and memorable and changed everything and changed those guys' careers. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's not as many layers. Uh, and it, 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 just, just as, just as memorable, but, uh, 
the DiBiase flair one is just so brilliant in terms of every way everything was laid out and everyone had a purpose and it just made so much sense. Yeah, and and so when we go to June 1980, it's not just about Junkyard Dog and the Freebirds. Uh, so uh, we talked about our statistics earlier. So we're going to talk about the roster uh, in Mid-South in June of 1980. And by using our spot ratings, I sort of put them into categories. So we're going to start with the top category, which is our main eventers. And generally speaking, they have a spot rating of 0.80 and above. So we're going to start on the babyface side, where the top babyface is not junkyard dog and junkyard dog is not second either um but our top baby face based on their average position on the cards for the month of june is paul orndorff uh number two baby face is ted dibiase and number three is junkyard dog on the heel side number one heel ken mantell number two killer con and number three terry gordy so john let's talk about ken mantell Let's talk about Ken Mantell, the heel. Let's talk about Ken Mantell, the oil tycoon heel wrestler. <laughs> yeah. He, now he had legitimately left the wrestling business a few years before this, correct? Yes, he's out. I think it's about two and a half years. Uh, and he comes back in earlier in 1980, a couple of months uh, before this. And while he was gone, he, he became a partner in an oil company, CL, CLW Oil, I correct. Uh, I CLK, if he was the- yeah, CLK Oil. I, so he's the L, Ken Lusk. He's the L Lusk. I assume so. And, and uh, when we say oil company, they own several gas stations uh, around Texas. Um, so uh, in a way, he was an oil tycoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of the character is, is you know based on uh, Larry Hagman's character from Dallas, which was a very, very popular ah, TV show at the time. Yes. Um, but he also legitimately, you know, was in the oil business. So it, it, it's again using uh, the the real character traits or the real backstory of someone to integrate it into a wrestling character. And he's a very interesting guy too. Like he he is one of the one of the guys I would really love to read a bio on. I mean, you hear a lot about him in other. From other people in their books, but I would love to hear his side of the story as well. Yeah, I I, I love reading biographies, but I always want to hear uh, you know as many sides as possible. Um, at some point, we'll talk about this. But I recently have been reading Gil Culkin's uh, book, which came out, which uh, talks a lot about uh, him and his father promoting in Mississippi. They were the local promoters for Leroy McGurk. They actually split away and had their own territory for about two years, uh, and then ended up uh, back in the fold when Bill Watts split from McGurk. But they this time they were with Watts. Um, so. We've heard Watts' side of the story, um, I think, through uh, interviews with uh, Brian Blair or, or Mike McGurk, Leroy's daughter. We've heard a little bit about this, but to hear it from Gil's side as well, again, it just adds a third story in which we can hopefully yeah. glean out the real truth, which is probably n- nothing like any of the three individual versions. <laughs> that's why we, that's why I, I just got the book myself this week, and it's, it is it's like a puzzle. You're getting three different guys' story and gleaning little bits and pieces from each to figure out what the what the story might have been. Right. Yeah. So so we've got Ken Mantell, Killer Khan, and Terry Gordy as our main event level heels and main event level baby faces Orndorf, DiBiase, and JYD. So John, um you can run through the upper mid carters, which is the the second uh highest category. They have a spot rating of between point six zero and point eight zero. On the on the baby face side we have Buck Robley. 
he's here. He's mostly seeing tag match action with Roberts and Gordy. Uh, partnered with JYD for the early part of the month. Uh, and then after that, Ernie Holmes, who was next on our list. Who's Ernie ex, Holmes? Ex-football ex player, Pittsburgh Steeler, I believe. Um, I think, yeah, most of his career was with the Steelers. Um, and what else is he famous for in wrestling? WrestleMania two, right? He was in the yes. Battle Royal. He was yeah, one of the yeah. football players in the WrestleMania two Battle Royal. Um, and yeah, he, uh, I think he had at least one match in 79, uh, in Houston for Paul Bosch. Uh, he has a very brief run here. He sort of, uh, after JYD gets injured, he ends up teaming with Robley against the Freebirds. He then has a, another brief stint in Georgia later in 1980, but I believe that's it for, uh, until the, uh, WrestleMania two. And then after him, we have Stephen Littlebear, who was, uh, I believe Steve Kovacs in yes. Memphis. Yep. And he's, he's mostly working against Stasiak after uh, Stasiak nailed him with a, a loaded roll of coins. Uh, oh, and, then, and then King Cobra, who just had a, a lovely article written about him a few weeks ago, I believe, retiring. Yeah, King Cobra. And, and it turns out the whole time he was a wrestler and, and he mostly worked around Mississippi, Memphis and in, in that area. But for many years, he was working several shows per week for these territories. It turns out that all that time he had a shoot job, as, yeah. as we call it in wrestling. He had a, a full time day job and, um, only took one sick day over the course yeah. of his career, which was the day after he broke his leg uh, during a wrestling match. Yeah. It's a great article. I'll re, I'll re, I think you posted it a, a few days ago. I'll, I'll retweet it. It's really, really, it's a really sweet article. And he's finally retiring at the young age of 138 years old. <laughs> King Cobra is one of those guys, like I must admit, it's a sweet article and he's, he's a lovely, lovely man, but I do have to admit to being, reading his name and seeing his name and results before actually seeing him and the name King Cobra. I was like, oh, this is going to be some super like tiger mask looking kind of dude doing all this crazy stuff. And then it was just, it was just a guy, you know? Yeah, it's just, just a guy. guy. Well, just a guy. Jimmy, well, Jimmy he's King. not, but he's not just a guy. He is King, just a he guy. Is King he's, Cobra. He's, he is King Karma. Uh, moving to the heel side. Uh, we have Buddy Roberts at the top. And he's, a, again, and this is a great starting point. If uh, Looking at the ascending spot rating over the course of the month as the, the angle with the, the birds and JYD sort of simmers and boils and takes off. Um, so that's very interesting to look at the spot rating week by week and look at the matches. It's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and he's mostly... Involved in tag matches with the the principles of this feud. Occasionally, a little random singles match against DiBiase. Uh, and next is uh, Stan Stasiak, uh, as mentioned, and working with Stephen Little Bear. And, and, uh, yeah, this was you know it, it was just weird to see Stasiak, obviously a former WWF champion, but most yeah. known for working in the Northwest. Uh, and that area, and, and this is just, he comes in, has a several month run and moves on his way, which so many wrestlers did in the territorial era. And that's another thing we look to do with charting the territories is to sort of track the movements of these wrestlers from territory to territory. Even though we focus on this one territory every now and then I put uh, some content out that, that looks at uh, wrestlers uh, traipsing through uh, other territories over a longer period of time. But you mentioned Buddy Roberts. He, um, Originally came in, I believe, in April as a, not part of the Freebirds, as just a, a sort of a mid-card heel. 
And uh, at some point, the decision was made to shift Michael Hayes into more of a managerial role and that Buddy Roberts would be a perfect tag team partner for uh, the uh, very young, although not that inexperienced. He's only 21, I think, at this point, but he's got like four years under his belt. And that's Terry yeah. Gordy. But um, just, a, you know, that you, you see that so many times in the territories, the, you know, youngster teaming up with the veteran. It just uh, helps people uh, improve and develop and grow uh, just such a basic formula that that worked for so many years. And so uh, and the Buddy Roberts actually started teaming with Gordy at late May, I think the third or fourth week of May. So they're new as a team when we get to June 9th. Um, and when we talk about June 9th, that is the angle. I do want to clear up a couple of uh, sort of things that are often misstated. Um, first and foremost, the angle uh, took place in New Orleans, but it was at the Municipal Auditorium. I see a few sources that say this happened at the Superdome. It did not. It, of course, built to a match later on in the summer at the Superdome, but the June 9th show was at Municipal Auditorium. Uh, and another thing to note, there are a lot of uh, records uh, of results. Um, there are incomplete results for this show, but there are a lot that list Orndorff and Mantell as having had a hair versus hair match earlier in the night. That, as to the best of my knowledge, and this knowledge comes from my friend Brian Ackman, who runs a great group on Facebook. Uh, it's called Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation. But uh, he gave me a lot of the info for this angle um, there was not a separate hair versus hair match on the house show. But in order to talk about this angle, we need to set the table because as we mentioned, there's always other things involved. And so before we talk about the Freebirds blinding junkyard dog, we need to talk about the feud between Paul Lorndorf and Ken Mantell. So John Mantell was a heel. He's an oil tycoon. And what he would do after defeating his opponents on TV is he would brand them, but not in the way we think of. So John, yes. uh, how did he brand them? No, not with a branding iron. He would cut off a lock of his opponent's hair as a symbolic type of branding. I wonder, I, I don't know, but I wonder if he like wore it. He had like maybe a, a little chain put around his neck and he would put all the locks of hair on it. That'd be a neat little thing to do. Um, but yeah, so he's doing this. He's cutting off a lock of opponent's hair and it's mostly the, you know, preliminary or mid card wrestlers he faces on TV. But, um, I know he did it to Iron Mike Sharp when, uh, Sharp was finishing up. Um, they build up to an arm wrestling deal on TV. I'm not sure if it was a standalone arm wrestling match between Ornorf and Mantell or if it was part of a larger tournament, but as you know, arm wrestling matches on TV end up about the same way that contract signings in yep. the ring do or birthday celebrations do, uh, and uh, that is not very well. So uh, Mantel attacks Orndorff and uh, uh, cuts off chunks of his hair with the scissors, so not just a lock, but not a full shave either, but he just cuts off chunks of his hair with the scissors. And then eventually, uh, it was a match with against Robley. I believe, that- I, I believe there's a tag match and I've been told it was Orndorff and Robley against Mantell and they think Killer Khan. Okay. And, uh, Robley inadvertently gets, gets stabbed, stabbed in the arm, right? With the scissors. Yeah. And they eventually ban the scissors. And from there, Mantel decides to use hair removal cream. Yes, and this was not yet called the Freebird hair removal cream because no. at this point it is uh, owned by Mantel. Yes, this is before branding. 
Yeah, but they, um, and Orndorff and Mantell, uh, have a main, you know, they're in main events all throughout the territory for much of May and June. There's an ad, another angle on TV where Orndorff finally gets the hair cream away from Mantell and puts it on Ken. And then Ken does a thing where he wrestles with a wig and a protective <laughs> headgear. And I guess at the house shows, they build to the spot where Orndorff finally, you know, pulls it off. That's I, I love the headgear. I love a head, good headgear angle. I love it. I love a good headgear angle. So, <laughs> so now that we have, now that we establish the reason for this hair removal cream being around the area, we come to June 9th, 1980. At this point in time, Junkyard Dog and Buck Robley are our Mid-South Tag Team Champions. And they agree to defend the titles in a no disqualification bout against Gordy and Roberts. Uh, Hayes, at this point, he was selling an injury angle that happened uh, that led to Buddy Roberts joining them. So I believe he's got a neck brace. Um, but they also agree to hair versus hair stipulations. One of the things I'm unsure of, I've been told that it's the loser of the fall um, loses their hair. Huh. However, there's a small part of me that that thinks that it's that it applies only to Robley or Hayes, that depending on which team lost, either Robley or Hayes would lose gotcha. their hair. But I've been told that's not the case. So I, I, I hmm. honestly don't know if any of our listeners can offer more insight. You can hit us up on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. We'll plug that later. Um, but so we've established no disqualification. Hair versus hair. There is clip footage of the match on YouTube. They had, uh, they had the, the cameras there at the house show. And of course, wrestling fans in those days didn't think like that. But nowadays it would be angle alert, angle alert yeah. that the cameras are, are filming the house show. But, uh, one of the things we can see on the clips is during the pre-match introduction, Hayes is very visibly, uh, holding that, that hair removal cream and making sure that people see it and, and, yeah. and emphasizing that, yes, it's hair versus hair, but that he has the cream. So, uh, John, the body of the match. And then there's a lot, a lot of back and forth. Um, during the match, JYD gets knocked out, not uh, knocked out of the ring, rather. Uh, Robley ends up taking the pinfall, uh, and Hayes jumps in the ring with the, with the cream, gets a big, big juicy scoop out, and he's ready to get it on Robley. Uh, JYD's in the ring, back in the ring, and he is, seems to not, be certain or aware that a pinfall has been made. Now he's not sure the match is over. Right. He, yeah. He's been not loopy on the floor. So when yeah. he finally gets back in, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't see that the match has ended. He just sees, he just Hayes sees with Hayes cream. with that cream attempting to apply it to his brother, man. And, and so, yeah, yeah. He, he grabs him, tries to stop him, sort of swings him around. And then the, the momentum of, of the pin being spun around causes the cream to go into JYD's eyes. And he, Boy, does he sell this good. He sells it like, yeah, he's, he, he sells it like he's, you know, he's, it's insane. Um, and uh, when Watts is talking about it, and this is so very important in, in this angle, Watts questions whether it was accidental or not. Yeah, Watts adds a little, you know, that that question to things. And, and as I understand it, at some point on TV, that Hayes also claimed that, Orndorff had tampered with the cream at some point, and so it's Orndorff's fault. Again, they're they're trying to put all these other people into place so that uh, you know house shows can have mixed up lineups and and still see people. But this is big. But we've seen blinding angles all the time. In fact, in in uh, 1976, uh, when we talk about June 76, in late May, they did an angle on TV where uh, Murdoch 
got blinded. So, but this one hit harder, uh, or resonated more in fans' eyes. And, and it's important that we talk about Junkyard Dog at this point in time. This is June 1980. Um, he had just come into the territory with a push in, uh, September 1979, where he started out as a heel. And he is a heel for a few months. He turns babyface in mid-December. So this is really just six months of him being a babyface, and they have elevated him in one of the main event spots. Uh, before Orndorff and DiBiase came in, Watts and Robley were sort of the two top babyfaces, and Junkyard Dog was behind him. Watts pulls himself out of the ring, and Robley and, and JYD are the top babyfaces. When Orndorff and DiBiase come in, uh, they get pushes as well. So, so JYD is not the JYD we know of as the King of New Orleans, this and that. At this point, he is one of the three main eventers in in the in the main event mix but for some reason the fans just just take to this one so uh, uh, and a lot of our listeners have probably heard these stories but john let's just sort of run through what we know about the aftermath of this i mean it's just intense intense heat like like three birds having to drive to the instead of driving to the arena drive to the closest police station and get a police escort to and from the building um JYD's home, uh, you know, he's in and Watts has him not leave the house with the blinds shut, the whole thing. Uh, the, the people sending money, like everybody's sending up dollar bills, kids are sending in change, whatever. Uh, his and JYD's wife is pregnant at this time. So there's the whole, uh, you know, Watts says, oh, he may, he may never get to see his own daughter. And uh, it's this intense, intense heat for the for the Freebirds here. Yeah. And this, yeah, the Freebirds had major, major heat. And again, we talk about junkyard dog only being there for six months, um, or for nine months and only being a baby face for six months. The Freebirds came in in February as well. Uh, no, actually they came in in November. So they're still, and, and they're really young, uh, at this point. Um, so yeah, this is Bill putting, not only trusting these guys, but trusting these young guys without a history, uh, but of, of drawing in the top spot and giving them the ball and man, they ran with it. And, and it just resonated so strongly with fans. Um, it of course builds up to a show at the Superdome on August 2nd. So at some point between June 9th and August 2nd, there's the story we've all heard where they, uh, announced they're going to, that JYD is going to make an appearance at, at, a, at the municipal auditorium in New Orleans. And so he's, uh, either in the ring or I guess at ringside, uh, and either Hayes or, you know, Hayes and Gordian Roberts confront him and the fan, uh, a fan jumps the guardrail with a gun and says, I got your back, dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, that, that's, uh, it's you know, that, I mean, this is great. I've, I've, but this is so uh, a lot of our listeners probably don't know. I worked as a, uh, manager for independent wrestling in the, uh, nineties and, uh, two thousands for a little bit, uh, under the name Al Getz. Never had a gun pulled on me by a fan. I did have a gun <laughs> on me pulled by a wrestler, but that's another story for Different another story. day. Um, um, and one of the things that's important to talk about, we mentioned that, uh, when we look at the spot ratings that junkyard dog was behind DiBiase and Orndorff. And a lot of that is due to what happens in the week or, or two after this angle, which was on June 9th. It's important to address the fact that junkyard dog was still advertised on house shows. 
Um, for the remainder of that week and for most of the following week, um, first thing we're called, the ads are usually sent into the papers on, on Sundays. Um, so there's a lead time, but this is a case where let's be clear. They were intentionally falsely advertising junkyard dog. And what, what I do want to say is that his matches on these cards that he's advertised for are placed slightly lower on the cards than normal. Um, and it's generally him and Robley against the birds, whereas they would normally be main event or second from the top. They're usually a spot or two down from that. So in some way they're hedging that they're, they're yeah. not falsely advertising the main event. Yeah. And this also could fall under, you know, someone is quote unquote injured and beyond the promotions control. So it can yeah. fall under that too. There, as there well. are numerous times when wrestlers are legitimately legitimately injured and the card needs to change. Um, and I'm not going to say this never happens, but it's very, very rare. And again, think about the mindset of the time. The fans believed this was legitimate and that's how the promoters and bookers treated it. So, and the occasional, you know, this guy got hurt, not only is okay in their eyes, but adds to the realism of it is oh my god you know they presumably they announced this at the beginning of the show and where i have results someone like king cobra or uh mid carter jake roberts who's in as a baby face uh would take junkyard dog's place so we we can both understand that in 2020 you can't do this although wwe did it with wrestlemania (laughs) um but we understand that it's wrong now but looking at it at at the time in 1980, as long as you don't overdo it, I understand it and and uh, and and can live with it, even if I'm not over the moon about it. Yeah, I I, I, I give them a pass on this, unless I'm, I'm actually time traveling back to a specific date based on an advertisement, in which case I would not give them a pass. But normally I would. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, again, in my, you know, what I say is they didn't do it nearly as often as you might think. One of the things to think about when you look over all these old results, you're looking at months and months of results from dozens of towns in, you know, one sitting. Yeah. To the fans at the time, all they knew was what they saw on TV and generally what happened at their local house show. So even if we're saying he's falsely advertised for two weeks, is only it only happens in those cities once each time. It never happens more than yeah. once in a city, and it doesn't happen in every city. So again, think of it that way. It's not rampant false advertising in the eyes of of the fan. Um, yeah, but, and again, again, and not to uh, blow more smoke up Bill Watts's butt, but I think Watts is also smart enough as a booker slash promoter to not false advertise over and over again because I think he knows that would have adverse effects on his promotion. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Again, we, we, if we believe that these guys were businessmen and their goal was to make money, uh, then they certainly, uh, yeah. And yes, there are stories of promoters intentionally killing towns or killing the territory, but this is not, you know, they didn't want to do that. That was where they felt they needed to. But so we talked about house shows. Let's sort of run down the loop. One of the other things we do on the blog, aside from these ridiculous statistics that I've made up out of thin air, we also list advertised lineups for all the house shows uh, we have. So um, when I say we're covering June of 1980, we're actually covering the five-week period from May 26th through June 29th. So a five-week period, we've got 38 house shows uh, all told. So if we look at the weekly loop, Mondays was generally New Orleans or nearby Chalmette. 
And a lot of times when you look at results from Shawmet, they're listed as being in New Orleans. Um, I've been told it's, it's not wrong to do that, but Shawmet is a separate, uh, designation, uh, in St. Bernard Parish. Um, it's also a smaller venue. Um, the municipal auditorium seated somewhere around 7,000, and I think Shawmet was closer to three or 4,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so based on scheduling and availability and, and what, you know, how business was doing would decide whether they, which venue they ran. Tuesdays is Baton Rouge. Wednesdays is Jackson, Mississippi. Thursdays, it looks like there's a split crew. They're running two shows every Thursday, and one of them alternates uh, every other week between Greenville, Mississippi and Greenwood, Mississippi. So they were on Greenville one week, Greenwood the next, so on and so forth. But based on who's, uh, how those house shows are booked, there are plenty of, there are enough wrestlers left over that they're probably running another show on Thursdays. I don't know if it's a weekly town or a bi-weekly town, but it's more likely to be spot towns. Um, Friday was an all hands on deck show in Shreveport. Uh, Saturday morning, they ran, they did their TV taping in Shreveport. And then Saturday night, they usually ran two shows with a split crew. And sometimes they would, on Saturday nights, they would bring in talent from other territories. Uh, they would bring in talent from Georgia or from East Texas. Um, when they ran Biloxi, I believe Southeastern was also on TV in Biloxi. So they would often use, um, some of the wrestlers from there as well as some of their wrestlers. So they would, they would have two shows in, in big cities. Um, and they would just, or they would bring in a Dusty or an Andre or whatever, um, to do that. And then Sundays, Sunday night, they usually ran two shows, one of which is a small crew in a town called Huma. And then, uh, another one in towns like Monroe or Lake Charles or Lafayette. And they're also running one and sometimes even two shows during the day on Sundays. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen times when on Sundays they run an afternoon show at like two o'clock. Uh, another one at 6.30, and then, uh, no, they ran two at, in the afternoon, and then one in 6.30, and then one at 9 o'clock. I, I have a question about some of the smaller towns. This is, I've always wondered about this. I've, I've heard Watts, and he, he talks about it in his book, too, uh, about it not necessarily being economically sound to run some of the smaller Louisiana towns, but because of the athletic commission, they don't want the promotion to, quote-unquote, exploit the larger markets while ignoring... The, the smaller ones. Is this was this practiced throughout the entire time, um, like through uh, through to UWF time until well, Lu- Louisiana is its own unique thing. It's always been said that it's one of the two most politically corrupt states in uh, the USA, um, and so that's the verbiage as it was told to Watts by the Athletic Commission. But if you read between the lines. <laughs> It also seems to me that some of these smaller towns that were run are, are being done as political favors in that some politician has a stake in, in gotcha. the local arena in these small towns or in some other way benefits from that. But I will say a town they ran often, uh, in the seventies, Loranger, um, which is, it's an unincorporated town where the, uh, near Hammond, Louisiana. It was in the middle of nowhere and they drew packed houses weekly they used to run it on hmm. saturdays in the day so um i don't think huma was the same way but uh it, it's one of those where they say you know the the official story is you have to run regularly in the smaller towns as well as the big cities and that may very well be true but it's been intimated that there are also uh it, it's a form of a political kickback to to yep. run these smaller towns gotcha okay 
Um, so, uh, we talked about that. There's some other, uh, interesting faces further down the card that we didn't get to talk about. Paul Orndorff is a top baby face. His brother, Terry Orndorff, who, uh, they're legitimately brothers and he did not have anywhere near as long as a, or successful a career as Paul, but he's here as a mid carter, as are fellow baby faces Roberto Soto and a young Jake Roberts. On the heel side, we've got Frank Dusick and identical twins Mike and Pat Kelly, the Arco brothers, and a newcomer who starts out in the mid-card, but as we'll see in the coming months, is going to be moved up the cards, is the Grappler. Yep. One of the uh, guys on the, on the lower end here who I find myself unreasonably fascinated with is Hugo Savinovich. Hugo Savinovich is here as a preliminary wrestler. He is a heel. He is a, and he's a full-time wrestler at this point. Yes. I think this is his only time in the U.S. Is that correct? Like, I think he was here and, uh, in Amarillo. Yeah. He came here from Amarillo, um, off the top of my head. I don't know of any other stints in a U.S. territory, but, uh, he's of course best known as a, uh, he was briefly a man, he was a manager for a while, but he's best known as a commentator. And of course, I think to this very day, he still is a commentator for the WWE. Correct. To, to me, he's best known for being married to Wendy Richter. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That, no, I, I said that's one of the that's one of the that's that checks one of the fascinating boxes off in the Hugo Savinovich, and he's he's one of those guys like there's not a lot of information. Like he claims to have been in New York City in street gangs in the seventies. Like you know, and I, a lot of this might be just weird carny stuff, but uh, he. I, he's another guy. I would love a. I don't know if he warrants the whole biography, but a little little deep dive on old Hugo because there's so many weird little things about his life that are interesting. That's the great thing about wrestling in this day is is these guys, you know, they they were generally speaking they were outside the societal norm to want to do yeah. this for a profession. So they have such interesting stories. I, you know, Don Fargo and Chris Colt uh, oh, to God. me are just yeah. the greatest characters of all time, and I can't see them sitting in an office do, doing a real job. But that being said, I also can't see them being a professional wrestler today and 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 be having a social media presence, for example. I, I don't yeah. see I don't see Don Fargo tweeting. And I I can see Chris Holt <laughs> tweeting, but I don't think anything good would come of it. No, he's definitely an all-caps tweeter. Chris <laughs> so, Holt would definitely yeah. So when uh, we talked about the roster, we looked at uh, the, the sort of the spot ratings and how the wrestlers fall in line. Um, briefly run down uh, some of the feud scores for the, the biggest feuds. Um, the three biggest feuds uh, in the territory for the entire month are Killer Khan versus Ted DiBiase. Ken Mantell versus Paul Orndorff, which we talked about. And then third is Stasiak versus Little Bear, which we also talked about. But Killer Khan and DiBiase, Khan debuted so either February or March. And in his second, the second week of TV, he does a big angle with DiBiase where he injures DiBiase. And DiBiase sought treatment in Japan, of course, uh, for this injury. <laughs> um, and DiBiase took a little over a month off and came back and, and had, and was feuding with Khan on the house shows. And they are feuding, uh, uh, all around the loop in the month of June. They have title matches. They have matches that end in a DQ, which build up to a no DQ match in Baton Rouge. They have a lights out match on June 17th. 
So they're the biggest feud, um, statistically speaking. And if we, we talk about feud scores, their peak feud score during the month was in uh, the week of June 22nd when they had a 59. And again, that number doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean they wrestle each other 59 times. It just, it's, um, just the highest number relative to the other feuds at the time. For comparison purposes, Mantell and Orndorff's peak feud score during the month was a 53. Stasiak and Little Bear peaked at a 48. And then after that, the next highest feud score is Robley and JYD versus Roberts and Gordy with a 27. So there's a, that's right in that, a steep drop from there. Um, and, and when we talk about 1980, we also have to understand that it's not just Bill Watts. It's Mid-South Wrestling, but there's another territory, um, owned by, run by Leroy McGurk. They split from Watts. Watts and McGurk split in September of 79. Watts got Louisiana and Mississippi and a sliver of Texas. And McGurk got his original, uh, stronghold of Oklahoma, a part of Arkansas and a small part of Missouri. So he is operating what we refer to as tri-state wrestling. And John, if you want to run over the some of the names on the roster, so we got uh, B. Brian Blair. Spoiler: We're feuding here. Uh, I've got Tommy Gilbert, a young young Coco Ware, young King Parsons, pre-Birdman, pre-Iceman. Uh, so this roster is very, but compared to the Mid South roster, the roster seems thin. Uh, but you can notice McGurk attempting to hold things together by bringing in, brings in some bigger names for one-off shots here and there. Uh, guys who don't necessarily show up in the spot ratings. Like he brings in Andre, uh, David Von Erich, Dory Funk Jr., Harley Race, JJ Dillon. Was it Andre and Dory both do double shots? Um, yeah, they work an afternoon show here and then, um, and they fly, uh, to different shows later that night. But yeah, Harley came in for a couple of title events. It's interesting to note that McGurk is still an NWA affiliate and Bill Watts is not and, and never was. Um, yeah. for if I can, if I can go back to, uh, to Wattsland quickly, uh, to talk about Flair, that Flair DiBiase angle, was that the first time? that flair had been in uh for watts um i to the best of my knowledge no um but okay. you're you're asking extemporaneously and i'm not going to take the time to google it um gotcha. and, yeah, but we, <laughs> we, we'll follow up um okay. i don't think so um but i'm not i'm not positive um but okay. one of the, and you you mentioned king parsons here here's a question for you so when i first was aware of him as a young fan uh watching tv in the 80s and we're john we're about the same age um, my question for you is, did you think his first name was Iceman and his nickname was King? Or did you think his, uh, uh, you know, what did you think at the time that his first name was King and his nickname was Iceman? Or did you think his first name was Iceman, his middle name was King? Or did you not bother yourself with such foolishness and I'm insane? Oh, no, of course I bothered myself with the sort of foolishness. Let's not be foolish. The, no, I thought it was his first name was Iceman. And, you know, Iceman, quote unquote, king. And that's what I thought. And guess what, John? We're both wrong. Yeah. 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 And and not only were we wrong, his first, his character's first name was King, but his real name was King Parsons Jr. Uh Oh. According according to Wikipedia, his first, his real name is King Parsons Jr. But now I have a question. So his father was named King. Why wouldn't you, wouldn't you name him Prince? 
Prince. Well, yeah. <laughs> or, or, I, I'm not sure how, you know, how the royal family works in uh, Texas or, or wherever he was born uh, at the time. But yeah, wouldn't King Jr. be a prince? Yeah. Um, but yeah, a- no, I thought he was Iceman. Uh, yeah. yeah I, and I was wrong. He was, And here he's not Iceman. He is King Parsons. Um, but yeah, we have early appearances from the Iceman and the Birdman, which I think uh, was uh, something out of Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, um, it's seeing seeing Harley here and looking at Harley's schedule is particularly insane. Um, how he's you know on the sixteenth he's in Fort Worth, Texas, I think, uh, and then seventeenth on the seventeenth he's in Allentown for WWF taping. Yeah, that, and then that's the 18th, so random that he works for the, the works Allentown. Yeah, what's 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 weird here. Especially weird is that he's he's going to Allentown, Pennsylvania for doing he does like the two tapings, um, but he doesn't wrestle at a house show in the WWF until September, which is uh, it's odd to me. It's like w- that's yeah. how, I mean, that's how they did it. I don't know if the gap was normally that long, but they would, um, you know, when the, they would come in and just work TV and it was not and it wasn't while they're finishing out a two week notice somewhere. They would do it for yeah. a, a much longer period of time before starting on the road. Um, yeah, but, even to get further in the holds, like I always wonder why the showdown at Shea was in it on, on August, August 9th. Um, you know, and he's doing these TV tapings. Why would they not have him? There. I mean, he wrestled, I think, uh, Patera the night before in St. Louis, I think. So it's like, and, and Patera was at the showdown at Shea. So it's, it's a real head scratcher for me. I've always wondered why Harley was doing these TV. It's, it's, it's so, it's so strange. Yeah, but and the WWF at the time would do that. You know, obviously we know Dusty worked a lot of uh, you know Madison Square Garden shows. Uh, uh, Later on, Atlas is working. uh, How they had their schedule? They tape TV every three weeks, and the weekend it was Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and then the weekend before TV was generally their largest uh, house show markets um, were that weekend and. Uh, more often than not, they ran Madison Square Garden on uh, the Monday before these the Monday, tapings. Yeah. So Atlas was on TV regularly. He was not on the road full time. He'd be somewhere else, but he'd come in for that, you know, five or six day loop yeah. of working the big, the big house shows and the garden and then doing TV. Uh, it's just so interesting how WWF used wrestlers from, from other territories on, on a part-time basis, but uh, at very weird intervals. Sometimes they did that with Atlas. Sometimes they would do it with Harley where he just would come in for TV and, and not eventually work house shows. It, it's just so weird to see how they do that. Um, yeah, but, and if I recall yeah. correctly, like the September show from the garden that Harley was on, I don't even think they showed the Harley Backlund match from that show. I may, I might be I'm going too far into a Harley hole here, but it's, 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 it's always makes me, takes me back. And I'm, it's a real head scratcher for me again. Anyway, back to McGurk land. Yeah, back back to McGurk land. You know, that's a, it's a small roster. They're running one show a night and we don't have, we have less data from there. We, we know they're running Mondays in Tulsa. They're running Tuesdays in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They're running Wednesdays in Springfield, Missouri. They're almost certainly running 
a good five, six days a week. But aside from those three shows, we, we have one show over the course of the month in Oklahoma City, one in Little Rock, one in Joplin, Missouri, uh, sorry, two in Joplin, Missouri, and then one, uh, spot show in Lebanon, Missouri. So we don't have complete data. So when we look at the feud scores here, the biggest feud is Brian Blair versus the spoiler, but their feud score, uh, peaks at a 32. Um, which is much lower than what we saw for Mid South because we have more shows uh, for Mid South. If we if this is a home run, for example, if we had full data for 162 baseball game season, we'd know how many home runs you know McGuire or Sosa hit. Yeah. If we picked a hundred games at random, um, you know they would obviously have less home runs. So that's sort of the case here. It's based on a smaller uh, data set. Um, but yeah, that's 1980, uh, for Mid-South. Um, and then a brief look at 1980 for Leroy McGurk. Um, as I mentioned earlier on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we also look at 1976. So June 1976, the big news is we, uh, talked about in 1980 how Buck Robley was one of the top baby faces. And this is where he turned baby face. It actually happened. Uh, I think the angle was filmed in very late May, but it, uh, makes its way through the TV, uh, loop, uh, through June. Um, and on the house shows, um, you can see where one night he's in one town as a baby face, uh, and the next night he's back as a heel because that town hasn't had the TV angle air yet. Yeah. That's always interesting the way they have the, the different, uh, the TVs and it's, again, that's, it's, uh, having a book for that seems especially daunting to yeah, have to know. Yeah, I mean, you have to keep track of, you know, all, all these towns. And, and in 1976, uh, they're running two towns a night, uh, generally speaking, every night. Um, so yeah, keeping track of that. But again, that, you know, they know that they know the TV schedule, uh, what we refer to as the bicycle. And, uh, a lot of times they might not run big angles every week on TV, but they sort of schedule it. Um, such that, you know, they have, you know, have it in such a way so that if it's every, you know, few weeks, they make sure all the major towns have shows the, the week that angle hits. But the Robley babyface, he had been a, uh, what I call a player coach. He was a manager, but he was also a full-time wrestler, but he was managing, uh, at this point in time, Killer Call Cox and Ken Patera. And, uh, Bob Sweetan was an associate of Cox's, but not being managed by Roebling. I think that's part of the friction, but the main gist of the angle was that, uh, there was a TV match with, uh, I believe Cox and Sweet Tan against, uh, two upper mid card or mid card baby faces. I, I, I think Ted DiBiase and Bob Griffin. Um, and on TV, they go to a time limit. The baby faces ask for five more minutes. Uh, and before the heels can protest, Roebling says, sure, why not? And so forces Cox and Sweet Tan to wrestle five more minutes, which again goes to a draw. The baby faces again ask for more time. And again, before the heels can protest, Rock Robley says, yeah, sure, let's do it. And Cox finally has enough and he fires Robley. Yep. And then what are our other heels? We've got Cox, Patera, Sweet Tan. And our baby face side, we've got, we've got old, old Bill Watts, Grizzly Smith, Tom Jones. And, and Dick, yeah, and, you know, and Dick Murdoch, and and Dick Murdoch had just returned uh, after seeking treatment for his uh, an injury in Japan. Um, but what they did storyline wise in the house shows, they started him out 
lower on the cards than he had been with the idea he's still recovering from the injury. It was an eye injury and he's working his way back up into top form. But you mentioned Tom Jones. One thing I do want to say, Tom Jones was a regular in this territory for many, many years. It was not anything out of the ordinary to see Tom Jones here. (laughs) It was nothing beyond reason to see (sighs) Tom Jones. Um, and you, you mentioned, uh, uh, going a little further down the roster, we've got a, a, a lot of junior heavyweights. We've got Ron Starr. We've got Jay Clayton. We've got Bob Griffin. We've got Ted Heath. Um, in March of 1976 was when Danny Hodge had his, uh, career ending, uh, automobile accident at just, just less than two weeks after regaining the, uh, world junior heavyweight title. So, uh, they didn't do anything with the title for a long time, but, uh, at some point, they brought in a bunch of light heavyweight wrestlers. And uh, towards the end of June, we actually start what is a seemingly never-ending tournament um, yes. to crown a new world junior heavyweight champion. And it's not a tournament with a bracket. It's a, a series of elimination bouts. And again, being how wrestling was, each town might have its own, uh, you know, uh, tournament tracking. So a guy that loses in Tulsa might not be eliminated from the tournament in Little Rock until he loses in Little Rock. Um, yeah. I've also seen things where if a wrestler was lost by disqualification in one of these elimination bouts, they're not eliminated. That doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> the, the results for the tournament are kind of all over the place when you, when you look at, you look at them. Um, yeah, so, uh, and it uh, takes place over a course of a, a couple of months before we get there. And then as we go further lower in the card, there's some interesting faces. John, was there anyone, uh, that, that you wanted to talk about? Rick McGraw is here, Solento Rodriguez, Gene Lewis, who's Gene Pettit. Um, anyone else you wanted to mention? There, uh, yeah, there's, 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 uh, George Strickland is here. And this is, appears for all intents and purposes to be the end near the end of his, his in-ring career. And he's been around since the 40s, and he had a, a perfectly respectable career. But there's one aspect of his career that is of particular interest to me because I am a psychopath. Um, our listeners may be familiar with Dr. Sam Shepard, the, the neurosurgeon who was accused, convicted, and later exonerated of murdering his wife. Uh, the Fugitive, the television show slash movie Richard Kimball, is supposedly based on him and those events, although... The creators would routinely deny that. Um, regardless, Shepard is exonerated after 10 year, years in jail, and he's allowed to open a medical practice in Ohio, in the suburbs somewhere. And later in May of 68, granted surgery privileges at a hospital. But, quote unquote, his skills as a surgeon have deteriorated, and much of the time he was impaired by alcohol. Uh so a mere five days after these privileges had been granted uh, during some sort of surgery, he accidentally cut an artery of a woman oh, who wow. died the next day. And then in August, during a surgery, he nicked uh, the right uh, iliac artery of a patient who died from internal bleeding. So he, of course, resigns a few months later because of wrongful death lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, back to George Strickland, the, the actual wrestler. Um I've heard two stories of how they how they met. One is that uh, Strickland's wife worked for Shepard at his medical practice, and the other story is that I've heard that uh, that they Strickland and Shepard met at the gym. Uh, either way, the two, the two became friends, and uh, Strickland introduces Shepard to wrestling and trains him. 
and Shepard debuts in August August 69. And he's 45 years old at this point. And his finishing move was the, uh, they called it then the, the mandibular nerve press, uh, more popularly known as today as the mandible claw. Um, and he works, it says he's, he, if you Wikipedia him, he's like, he worked 40 matches. I can't find results for 40 matches. Um, but one of the more interesting matches I came across was from Chattanooga with uh, Strickland and Shepard uh, taking on the mighty Yankee number three and Ron Wright, which is, <laughs> I can't think of, I, I can't think of two people I'd be more afraid to be trapped in an elevator with than Sam Shepard and Ron Wright. It's like, the your, your odds of shedding blood in that elevator seem very, very, very high. Um, yeah, one's got a scalpel, the other's got a chisel. He's got my chisel. And, you know, <laughs> in October October of 69, uh, Sam Shepard, of course, elopes with Strickland's daughter, <laughs> uh, adding another bizarre twist to this whole thing. And Shepard would be dead by April of 1970. But Shepard's a great, if you just want to go down a, a hole of, a, a, a research hole of weird murder, bizarro stuff. Dr. Sam Shepard is the way to go. Yeah. The the thing I say about characters like, like that is why did it take them so long to get into wrestling? Cause they were tailor made for it. Um, yeah, yes. I, I don't, it doesn't, I don't think he had 40 matches. Um, I think it was less than that. And, and from what I've read, a lot of the times it's, it's presented not as, a, as more of a special attraction that they, you know, they're not saying it's not a real match, but it's presented as, uh, you know, sort of a, almost a non-canon separate, you know, thing from the regular wrestling that, that's going on on the yeah. shows. Um, uh, so it's interesting. And another really interesting face, uh, makes an appearance in Chalmette on June 17th, 1976. And that is Dick the Bruiser who uh, defeats Bob Sweetan. Um, what they're doing, they're actually building up uh, to run the Superdome in July, uh, and this would be the first ever uh, car in the Superdome. Uh, and they bring Dick the Bruiser in for a couple of shows in the New Orleans market, which Shawmet is in. And as we get into July, they also bring in Abdullah the Butcher for one of those shows. And uh, hmm. on the Superdome, Dick the Bruiser works against Abdullah the Butcher uh, in another match featuring two people I would not want to be stuck in an elevator <laughs> with. That's not true at all. Abdullah, I, I had the pleasure of working with him. Uh, I worked on shows with him a, a few times, but I got to talk to him one time in particular. He's a, he was a, he's a sweetheart. He was a doll. Um, really helpful and informative. I was uh, doing commentary. And, and so uh, we talked things over ahead of time and he did, he did a really good job in particular of one thing he uh, that I ran by him that he didn't want me to talk about. And he gave very good reasons why he didn't want me to do it. So I, you know, I really appreciate the veterans taking the young kids aside and saying, don't do this. And here's why. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's 76 and uh, you can take a deeper look, uh, of that on the blog. Um, very quickly looking over the feuds. Actually, the biggest feud, uh, as far as how often the match happened is Ron Jones, uh, Ron Jones, Ron Starr versus Tom Jones. 
And after that, we've got Bill Watts and Ken Patera. And then uh, newly turned babyface Buck Robley versus Killer Carl Cox is uh, third. So those are the three biggest views in the territory. And if you want to learn more about June 1976, talk about that. But we mentioned the Superdome next month on uh, the second edition of Charting the Territories, the podcast. We will uh, take a deeper look at 1976 and we'll look at that Superdome card um, and see how it drew and see how that compares to later Superdome shows and, and just sort of see if we can see how uh, Watts and McGurk were sort of peaking, building things to uh, sort of peak for that show at a time when they didn't have WrestleMania, they didn't have super shows. Uh, and this is, you know, really, uh, an early version of that. Um, some of the territories had run similar ones earlier, particularly WWF, but we'll, we'll look at how they cater the card, um, and, and build to it. Um, but we also look at 1972. And a couple of interesting things happen in June of 1972. We have the return of one of the big heels of the territory in the, uh, between 70 and 72. And that's Dr. X, who here was Jim Osborne, who at one point, uh, wrestled as, uh, Dr. XX as a tag team partner of Dick Beyer. Um, but here he's just plain old Dr. X. But earlier in the year, he, uh, he had been the junior heavyweight champion. He lost the title to Danny Hodge and they continued their feud and they built two title versus mask matches around the loop where Osborne lost and unmasked and, uh, was acknowledged as Jim Osborne. Um, it was mostly to Hodge, but I think he also lost it to Ivan Putsky in at least one town, but he lost his mask around the horn, left for a couple of months and returns with the mask. Um, again, as long, you know, as long as they unmasked him in all the towns and all the house shows and you got to see who he was, I can, un- you know, I can accept coming back with a mask. I mean, look at, you know, Ray Mysterio, uh, you know, he was unmasked, but then at some point he put the mask back on and that's okay. Is that similar to what they did with him in the AWA where he was there or was it, it was the reverse? Was he there under, under as Jim Osborne? Well, Os- back? Osborne had been here as Jim Osborne long before he was Dr. X. Yeah. Um, I, uh, AWA is one of those territories that especially at this point in time is, is not in my wheelhouse. Um, I, I haven't dug too deep into early seventies, AWA, um, so I'm not sure, but here he had been here as Jim Osborne in the, uh, mid to late sixties. So gotcha. again, then when they unmask him, it's not just some guy, it's some, Oh, I remember that guy who yeah. had been here before. There's a, a degree of familiarity to it. Um, but we also, uh, have, um, a, some women wrestlers coming in and it's Vivian oh, yeah. Vachon and five other women wrestlers and they come with a film crew in tow. And this is where they did a lot of filming for what uh, was released the following year as the documentary Wrestling Queen. Um, and I believe that uh, in an interview with uh, Butcher Vachon, Vivian, of course, is a member of the Vachon wrestling family. Um, Butcher says that it uh, it originally wasn't going to focus on Vivian, but that as they were filming various footage, they realized uh, Vivian uh, had had st- star qualities that would translate well uh, on the big screen, and it turned into a, a focus on her. So uh, she's in for a week, and she wrestles a different uh, woman wrestler every time she's there. And she's not winning every night either. The the results are sort of a mixed bag. So it's sort of the trials and tribulations of a of a new aspiring you know professional wrestler. I just watched that, that uh, wrestling queen a few months ago. It's it's I, I 
If you have not seen it, anyone has not seen it, I recommend it just for the, just for the footage. The footage is great. Watch it on mute if you want. But the the any of that old '70s footage is so much fun because there's so little of it out there, and even the the footage of the fans and uh, they go out to like a restaurant. You know, so you see like uh, all the Vachans and like, Rene Goulet's there, and it's, it's 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 a great it's it's great great footage. Highly recommend Wrestling Queen. I found a uh, I had like a VHS copy for years and years and years, and I found someone selling it on DVD on eBay. So I was like, oh, I'll get this DVD. It ended up being from a member of the Watts family, huh? Selling uh, DVDs. So Fascinating. Very interesting. All right. Well, we've got uh, uh, listeners. If if John sounds like he's going in and out, do, do remember this is our first uh, attempt at recording this podcast, and uh, we definitely want to uh, make it as smooth a listening experience as possible for our listeners. So, uh, if we're having uh, some minor troubles now, we will work on that. But uh, take a look at the uh, main eventers. And there's a lot of main eventers. There's a lot of guys rotating in and out of the main events in June 1972. On the babyface side, we've got Bill Watts, Danny Hodge, Ivan Putsky, Tom Jones, because remember, this is uh, a regular occurrence and and nothing to be concerned about nothing, you know, <laughs> uh, to see Tom nope. Jones in the territory. We have Grizzly Smith, and we have the Pascagoula Plowboy, uh, yeah. Plowboy Frazier, Stan Frazier, Uncle Elmer who comes in, he's here for about a month, and he's treated kind of like a Haystack or an Andre. Um, he does a lot of battle royals, or he's teaming with uh, one of the baby faces uh, to get revenge against two of the heels. Um, uh, on the heel side, the roster is Dr. X, um, the tag team of the Continental Warriors, Lorenzo Parente and Bobby Hart, the Stomper, who is uh, Big John Quinn, um, the Kentucky Butcher and not Archie Goldie or, uh, Guy Mitchell. Uh, we also have Bob Sweetan and Dale Lewis, uh, who I believe at one point, uh, was roommates with Bill Watts. Yes. I'm um, a little further down the card on the babyface side. We have, uh, Ken Mantell, not as an oil baron, but as a, uh, young newcomer, um, uh, and billed as a wrestling standout, uh, from Brigham Young University. Um, we also have Johnny Eagles on the heel side. We have Terry Garvin uh, of the Garvin Wrestling quote unquote family that included Ronnie and Jimmy. And we have Guillotine Gordon, who's another Canadian wrestler who presumably came down with uh, John Quinn, the stomper. The roster is really stacked here, man. Like when you look at this roster, it's and then then you realize you'll get into the towns later, but they're they're running three towns a night on multiple nights of the week. So yeah, we we have data for three shows a night for many nights and and the nights that we only have one or two they're likely running uh two or three. Um so again we're we're trying to get as complete data as possible but we can tell by we can tell by looking at the lineups we have we can figure out how much we're missing. Uh and I estimate if I've got over 14,000, you know, 500 shows I'm somewhere between 60 and 70% complete. Uh, and it, and it varies. There are some time periods where we're more complete. There are some where we're less, but that's a good estimate is we're somewhere probably around 65% or two thirds complete. Um, but yeah, they're running three shows a night. And a lot of times, you know, yes, there are big feud and big stipulation matches involving one baby face, one heel. But a lot of times the main event in, in some towns are, uh, two baby faces that not necessarily a regular tag team against two heels. And this can be used to build up a feud between two of them, 
uh, to build up to a singles match. Um, but yeah, they've got six main event level baby faces and six main event level heels. Yeah, this is interesting because if you look, when you look at the ratings, um, you have such a deep, deep roster and a lot of spot ratings in the high main event level. But the highest feud score tops out at, I think, 27, which is interesting. And I guess maybe that has to do with what you were just saying, or if it is, is this more of a transitional month? here um, or no, there's so many newcomers or what, uh, what, what there, did you say there's probably reasons? a there's probably a lot going on i think um one of the issues is is when those tag team matches occur i don't count that in the feud score like if it's watson hodge against you know stomper and guillotine i could easily say all right this i should give some credit to Watts versus Stomper and Watts versus Gordon and Hodge versus Stomper and Hodge versus Gordon. That um, literally increases the number of calculations by a factor of four, let alone if there's a six man, which would increase by a factor of nine. So gotcha, gotcha, I gotcha. don't count that. Uh, if I say it's Dale Lewis versus Grizzly Smith, it is only singles matches with Dale Lewis versus Grizzly Smith. And that's the feud you mentioned, which has a feud score of 27 at its peak. And this is the era where Grizzly is basically the Bruno Sammartino of Louis of lower Louisiana. And there's, um, there's some great footage of Grizzly in uh wrestling queen. Yeah. And you get to see it. Cause you know, you forget when, when you see him in eighties, mid South as Grizzly Smith matchmaker, Grizzly Smith, you know, he's sort of, walking around and he's walking around sort of like an older guy. I don't want to use the term hobbled, but he's, you know, not as spry as he once was. When you can see him in 1972, it's, it's impressive how he's a very big, imposing man. Yeah. And he's not, I mean, obviously he's younger in 72 than he was in 82, duh, but he wasn't yeah. that young. <laughs> he got his start. I want to say 61 or so, but he wasn't, you know, 22, 23 years old. I think he was a few years older than that. So he's not, you know, uh, he's a veteran, but he's also, he got a later start. So the fact that in 72, he's still that imposing, but what he does, he, he's basically running, um, the lower Louisiana towns. Um, it's not, you know, nowadays we think of the, the brand split and the raw crew and the SmackDown crew. It's not like that at all. It's not like you send 10 wrestlers down to Louisiana and they work all of those towns for a week straight. You still have guys, you know, different crews working together every night. And usually, you know, usually the way they worked is, um, everyone lives in the geographical center of the territory. So even if they're running towns several, you know, you know, several hours apart, everyone could be home at night and, and perhaps the next day they have to go a couple of hours in a different direction. But with Louisiana at this point in time, there are some geographical concessions because it's such a large piece of land that McGurk is running that we see a lot of the same faces on these Louisiana towns. And, and what happens a lot is, um, one of the big, uh, heels, if they have, uh, finished up a program in the northern section of the territory or they haven't yet started one or they're about to leave they'll come down to louisiana and do a program with grizzly um uh which can be a, a two or three match program uh you know so it takes two or three weeks similar to how they did it with bruno except on a monthly basis um you yeah. know where if it draws well they'll come back to it and if not they it's a one and done and grizzly wins but grizzly here is wrestling against dale lewis which is quite the contrast in size and technique yes. um you know but uh 
that's the feud at, at that's the big feud at the time and they uh, are generally working louisiana uh one match dale lewis was disqualified for using karate oh <laughs> which was a big no-no in those days yeah um yeah. and and they build up to a no disqualification match um but yeah there's there's really no big feuds um dr x is just coming in um the stomper is about to leave uh pascagoula plowboy is about to leave um Parente and Hart are the tag team uh, champions, but there's no steady babyface tag team. Jones had been teaming with Billy Red Lions, uh, but Lions left a couple months earlier. Um, And so there's no set tag team. They start putting uh, Ken Mantell together with Tom Jones as a regular tag team, but we don't see that just quite yet. So, yeah, it's just a weird transitional period. Feud wise. And um, but- also, it's another interesting thing about when you look at 72 and 76 uh, versus 1980, I've, I've been noticed looking at the, at, the, at the matches and the cards, is there seem like there's a, a lot more, uh, I don't know if I want to call them stipulation or gimmick matches during these years. Um, like you see a lot of, you know, gardens cuffed together or stomper must pin Ken Mantell twice or an English rules match with Johnny Eagles. Whereas by 80, you know, they're, they're mostly you have Watts using the stipulation matches as like a blow off, like a no DQ or a cage match or a loser leaves town. Yeah. I think in 72, a lot of times, I mean, yes, there's TV and yes, it's making it their way around, but also a lot of the angles are done at the house shows. And having, you know, and, and if each, each town is its own entity, they can gotcha. run angles in some yeah. towns that they don't run elsewhere. And, and so in particularly, uh, Loranger and Huma, Louisiana, um, and those towns generally, they are way far down in Louisiana. Um, and they ran Loranger on Saturday and Huma on Sunday. And generally speaking, okay. it's the same crew on both of those shows, not the same matches, but the same crew, but, they would sometimes, and they're B towns, so they would, uh, they would, maybe they felt because they didn't have the main eventers that they needed to have all these stipulations to get people interested gotcha. and invested in, in Johnny Eagles, uh, as opposed <laughs> to, um, a Watts or a Hodge. Gotcha. Um, but there's a couple of interesting names lower on the card. Both are rookies. Both are debuting in the territory. Both, um, were, uh, both got started in Houston for Paul Bosch and they both have parallel backgrounds before wrestling and after wrestling. So John, tell us about Leo Seitz and Siegfried Stanka. Well, both, uh, both were in wrestling for a few years. Uh, and both of them had significant, uh, accomplishments in, in coaching after, after wrestling. Uh, Seitz was a football strength coach, uh, and one of his clients was 1990 Heisman Trophy winner Ty Detmer. And Lehman coached football. Lehman, Lehman being uh, Stanke's real name. Yes, William, 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 Lehman. William Lehman. And he coached football and women's tennis, I believe, at uh, Texas Lutheran University, then Texas Lutheran, Lutheran College. Yeah, actually, his, he coached both men's and women's tennis in addition to football. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, and in 82, Stanky, or William Lehman, rather, uh, was the assistant football coach for Martin High School in Laredo, Texas. And the head coach of that team was Sonny Detmer, who is Ty Detmer's father. So it all, all intertwines. It's very Yeah, so we can, we can look at their post-wrestling careers, and we can connect them uh, with just a few degrees of separation. 
Yeah, I was hoping maybe in future episodes we could do like a six degrees of Siegfried Stanky. Uh, well, no, here's thing. the one. Here's the one I wanted to do years ago. Um, <laughs> six degrees of Tony Falk. Oh wow! Um, because it's very easy because he worked Jarrett, and ah, you yeah. can get to anybody uh, through Jarrett very quickly. Uh, but it would, it and it, you know, it, it's just a weird, quirky, you know, cult figure, Tony Falk. Uh, it would have been fun to do, but. Um, yes. And, um, actually before wrestling, both of them had football backgrounds in college and in, uh, either semi pro or I think, uh, I think one of them played in the Canadian Football League and both of them played in, um, the Continental Football League, which was a professional football league in the Southwest in the early seventies. Huh. Um, but yeah, and they, but they both got their start at the same time. Uh, neither, um, had a significant career in wrestling. I think Stonke more so. Then Sites, um, uh, he had some runs in Florida. He had a run in Florida. He had some runs in East Texas. Um, and a lot of times in Houston, he actually, early in his career, he wrestled under his real name of, of Bill Lehman. Oh, really? As opposed to Stanka. Huh. Yes. Did not know that. Interesting. Um, and so that, yeah, so that's uh, a quick look at 1972. Again, there's more on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. But we also uh, want to very quickly touch on the other th- time period we're looking at, and that is the second quarter of 1961. So we're going way back, way back. in the way back machine. Um, but we see some, some familiar faces. We see some names that we have talked about already. Um, your top baby faces are Danny Hodge, Mike Clancy. Uh, Mike Clancy might be an unfamiliar name. He was Irish Mike Clancy. He was a, at one point he was the world junior heavyweight champion. He lost the title to Savoldi. Um, before Savoldi lost it to Hodge. Um, and then a young, tiny Smith, who of course tiny. is Grizzly Smith. Um, but, uh, I guess the name was ironic to call him yes. Tiny Smith. And then on the heel side, we have perennial top heel in this territory, the great Bolo, which was Al Lovelock. Uh, and we have Mr. Nelson Royal. Um, further down the card, John, if you want to talk about some of the, the names we see. We've got uh, little Jody Hamilton in there, uh, Jack Curtis Jr., Bruiser Collins, Danny McShane, uh, and uh, further down the mid card, we've got Carol Carol Krauser, who uh, was the actual model for Superman, I believe. Uh, Jack Donovan, Red McKim. I am a card carrying member of the Red McKim fan club, as you know. Yeah. Um, and, and Red McKim is someone that a lot of people don't know about. He wrestled here regularly throughout the years, but he was also a full-time, uh, firefighter for the Tulsa Fire Department. At one point, he was chief arson investigator and he was kind of a big deal in the, uh, in the fire department. And he would wrestle either on days off or take vacation time or wrestle, you know, a couple of shows a week lo- closer to Tulsa, but he was uh, around the territory for years. We've also got Joe McCarthy, uh, no relation. Uh, Oni Wiki Wiki. What does his name translate to again? Uh, speed, so. Speedy, quick, quick. And one thing about speedy, Joe quick, McCarthy, uh, um, so, uh, how we do research or how a lot of people do research on these old shows is looking through uh, newspaper archive sites online. 
So we can go in and you can type a time frame, you know, a year and uh, a location and look at names. Joe McCarthy is not a good one to search for. That's uh, got to be get, especially maddening. Yeah. yeah, you get a lot of what we call false positives. Um, <laughs> you know, but names like Danny Hodge are really good to search for. So is Nelson Royal. Um, the Briscoes are good. Um, uh, someone like a Mike Davis is really bad because you find just yeah. there's a lot of people in the world named Mike Davis. Same thing with Terry Taylor. Um, but yeah, Joe McCarthy gets a lot of false positives. But yeah, Ani Wiki Wiki was, I think it's Speedy Quick Quick. Speedy Quick, good old Speedy Quick Quick. Uh, I got the baby blimp down there and Pepper Martin. Pepper Martin. Uh, Bob Boyer. Uh, what was the other name Bob Boyer went under? I'm blanking on it now. Uh, Bobby Redcloud? Yes, yes, I know. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, and that and was off the top of my head. I didn't even have that in job. my notes. Good job. Good job. Yeah, neither did I, obviously. Uh, and Spider Al Galento rounding out the, uh, the prelim scene there. Yeah, and did, uh, did you mention Danny McShane? Or- oh, Danny McShane, I've got, I've, uh, Danny McShane is, uh, <laughs> this, this one, uh, this is almost like a Seinfeld. Uh, it could be a Seinfeld episode. This this Danny McShane thing that I wanted to talk about quickly. It's like he's uh, he's wrestling Don Lewin, Mark Lewin, and Ted Lewin's brother in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and uh, the Lewins were from Buffalo. Uh, and Don's Don and Ted's sister and Mark's sister Sally had, had snuck out of the house with one of her friends uh, to go see her brother wrestle. Uh, and Don puts forth a valiant effort that evening, but ends up not only losing the match, but gets his nose broken. So his sister is shocked and appalled at the brutality of this man who just defeated her older brother. She goes home crying and horrified at what she's seen. Um, so later, later in the week, uh, Sally's at home. Uh, she sees a maroon Chrysler convertible pull up and it's got wood paneling and the driver comes out and he's a dapper looking guy with a cream colored suit, green loafers. And the, the, you know, but Sally is really struck by is the man's pencil thin mustache. And that is when she realized that this is Danny McShane, the man who broke her brother's nose earlier in the week. So Sally's dad, Sid goes on to tell her that earlier in the week, the dapper-looking gentleman came into his jewelry shop to have a watch band repaired. And Sid was so impressed with McShane and took such a liking to him that he invited him to dinner. So Sally's freaking out and uh, telling her mom that she's going to find a, find a date and will not be dining at home. So Sally is unable to find a date, sadly, and ends up having dinner with her parents and uh, the handsome stranger who, who broke her brother's nose earlier in the week. Um... Few, cut to a few years later, Sally and Danny McShane eventually get married, which is quite the quite the twist. So there you go. He breaks uh, Don Lewin's nose in a match, uh, and then uh, their father is so impressed that he invites him over, where uh, he meets the sister, and they fall in love and live happily ever after. And Don, I think, also told a story about uh, how he was told they were getting married. They were just somehow uh, Danny had convinced Don to drive across country to wrestle in California. So they each driving their cars and they're with their respective female partners and they're on a rest stop somewhere in route 66 or somewhere. And, and Danny gets out at the rest stop and just says, Hey, we're getting married. 
And Don replies, well, at least you're not shacking up. And that was, that was, that was that done deal. Well, there you go. That's, I mean, that's, I, mean, that's, I guess that's how they did things back in those days. <laughs> was but, uh, different, different times. Let's say, different different times. times. Yeah. 1961. Well, uh, do you know the date, you know, the time period of this? They got married in 1950. Okay. All right. So this is, uh, 1961 is many years later. I know. Yeah. McShane, um, was best known as a multiple holder of the National Wrestling Association World Light Heavyweight Championship. I believe yes. he held the Alliance's, uh, Light Heavyweight belt one time. Um, but in 1961, uh, yeah, I think McShane is uh, on the down, downward slope of his career, but still probably a tough son of a bitch. Yep. Uh, well, they all were. That's the, all the all the wrestlers were. So, yeah. yeah, it was the it was the exception in 1961 to not be a tough son of a bitch. True. So, so there you go. This is the uh, premiere episode of Charting the Territories. This is going to be a monthly podcast, and the plan as of now is to put these out the fourth week of every month, uh, somewhere probably midweek. Um, uh, but we looked at uh, one of the biggest angles in Mid-South Wrestling history, June 9th, 1980. Um, if you go check the blog, we can learn more about that month in Mid-South, and you can see more of these spot ratings and feud scores that we're talking about. We'll also have links to uh, that footage of the uh, match in New Orleans and of the angle. Um, and yeah, to uh, listeners that are hearing this stuff for the first time, I urge you to check out these statistics and, and, uh, see if you can, you know, get what we're trying to measure here. We're trying to measure a wrestler's, you know, spot on the card, which is something that really hasn't been done before. But I also want to put out, if you have any questions about the, these statistics, how we come up with them, what they mean, how we should interpret them, any, any, any question at all, since this is such a new concept, I, I welcome them. And in fact, uh, next month we will try and open up the mailbag and answer. Some of your questions. Oh, mailbag. That's yeah. Exciting. Mailbag. You can catch oh, me mailbag. on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. All one word, no spaces, Al G E T Z Wrestling. And John? I'm uh, at John Boucher, uh, J O N underscore B O U C H E R. And that's me. Uh, there you go. So, and the blog, of course, is chartingtheterritories.com. And I do also, again, want to thank my friend Brian Ackman with the Mid-South Wrestling University, Universe Appreciation Facebook group, who's going to give us a lot of the details on angles, uh, uh, particularly on TV, um, for this time frame. But next month, we are going to cover 1976 as our focus. We're going to look at the very first card at, uh, one of the, uh, classic wrestling venues, uh, where the streak was broken. Years later by Brock Lesnar, but here we're going to talk about the very first card at the Superdome in New Orleans. That's next month on Charting the Territories. And of course, uh, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next month. See you, everybody.